It, this is really the time that we're going to get a massive surge of testosterone. Like testosterone's like glory moment is in that ovulation window. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Stephanie Estima. And today I have back for round two, Dr. Mindy Pels. She is a renowned holistic health and fasting expert on a mission. This girl's on fire to get a million people fasting. Popular YouTube videos on fasting and alternative health have generated over 15 million lifetime views. She's also the host of the Resetter podcast. So we recorded today, and this is going to be simultaneously released on her show as it is on mine. And we wanted to come back for round two. So round one, if you missed it, will be a link in the show notes for you to check it out. And today we talked a lot about weight training, how to build muscle, and some of the common pitfalls that we see with training and with fasting in perimenopause. So some of the things that we talked about, we talked about training through the menstrual cycle when you are still in your reproductive years, how that changes when you are in perimenopause and some considerations that you might take nutritionally from a sleep and an energy and a libido standpoint, and also from a performance and achievement standpoint in the gym. And we talked about supplementation. So we talked about creatine, which is my, one of my favorite supplements, honestly, uh, and I don't think it gets enough credit. So we talked about the function of creatine in the myocyte in the muscle cell and how to take it and what it does for you. We talked about refeed days. So what a refeed is. So we can, there's a couple of different ways that you might consider a refeed, whether it's just a caloric bump or a carbohydrate bump. We talked about how we work out within a given week and especially around considerations through the cycle around ovulation the week before you bleed, why we want to be thinking about higher reps in the week before you bleed as a way to augment the inflammatory response and to overcome some of the insulin resistance that sets in in the luteal phase of the cycle. We also talked about blood glucose. There was a really great question around constant low blood glucose being optimal. We talked about the Dawn effect. We talked about rebound hypoglycemia. We talked about fasting, what breaks the fast? How do we fast? How do we want to think about fasting and the changes that happen in perimenopause? 
overall, just a beautiful winding uh, discussion. Uh, after we stopped recording, Mindy uh, said to me, it just feels like we're sitting at a bar, you know, just having a chat like we just flew by the time just flew by. Um, so I hope that you enjoy this conversation. And I hope that it won't be the last I think Mindy and I are just so happy to get together. So if the demand is there for us to continue doing these AMAs, please let us know. So without further delay, please enjoy AMA round two with Dr. Mindy Pels. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Mindy and Stephanie back for round two on the Resetter podcast and on the Better podcast. We are doing a one-two hit here. Mindy, I'm so happy we're doing this again. I know. I know. When I got off last time, I was like, oh my God, I want to do that again. Yeah. And it, it's just, you know, you and I, I always think like we're in the trenches seeing what women are asking and it's just impossible to get to everybody's questions. So it's so fun to do a collaboration like this. So I'm excited for this discussion. And we have to thank our Instagram followers because it was a comment on, I can't remember what it is now, but it was some Instagram story. And someone was like, can you please do something with Mindy? And I was like, Yes, I would love to do anything with Mindy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I have the yeah. feelings mutual. And I also just want to say that um, the geeky magic carpet ride, that is the statement <laughs> before I hopped on there that I was about to go on a geeky magic carpet ride. I just want everybody to know that's exactly where we're going. Oh, yeah. And I'm, and I'm so excited. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I am. I'm excited, too. It's going to be a lot of fun. A lot of questions came in. A lot of questions about muscle and body composition and training around the cycle. A ton yep. of questions around fasting. So I think that we and I tried to kind of amalgamate some of them, you know, that were similar themes. And I think we maybe we'll start with some of the if you're OK with it, we can start with some of the muscle and fitness questions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, one of the things that I would love to do because these questions are coming up in like pieces is let's go through the menstrual cycle and talk about like when should you lean in on heavier weights? When should you lean in on cardio? And then what I'd love to do beyond that would be talk about the perimenopausal woman yeah. and changes that need to happen to our workouts after 40, because that's another big one, I think, really is important for people to understand. Beautiful. Yeah. So I would say for the woman in her menstrual, you know, her reproductive years, my over, like the overarching comment that you'll hear from me is that you should always be lifting heavy weights. 
all through the cycle. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it's just how you structure the workout that's going to change based on the hormonal composition that you are experiencing that week. So as a general, you know, kind of back of the envelope, let's say review, when you're in your bleed week, first half of the week, estrogen's very low, progesterone's not around. The only hormone that's kind of really working hard is something called follicular stimulating hormone, which is as it, as the name suggests, is there to stimulate the follicle because that's the whole point of the follicular phase is to have one follicle that's chosen that's going to develop the egg within it. So mm-hmm. in the first uh we'll say let's say you start bleeding, you know, day 1, day 2, some women get a little crampy. There's you know, there's a little lethargy there. I I'm like that too. So the first kind of day that I get my period, I can feel like those uterine contractions, you know, expel you know, trying to expel uh you know, expel the um the endometrial lining. So I tend to take it a little easier, right? For mm-hmm. for me, I tend to just do a lot of walking because I find that just that beautiful, you know, walking when you think about what's happening mechanistically in the hips, of course, you're getting that beautiful figure eight in the sacrum. You're, you're lubricating the joints in the hip and the low back and the knees, which often a lot of women will complain about. So Mm -hmm. I try to get, um, you know, if I'm taking a day off of weights, I'll try to get in something like 10 to 15,000 steps, like long walks, gentle, slow movement. Some women are like, let's have at it. So, you know, Mm -hmm. you, there's a lot of bio-individuality there. I just like to be a little easier on day one. Um, but kind of day two, day three, I'm right back at it. So it's heavy weights, but the rep range is what I would classify as moderate. So somewhere Mm. between eight and 12 uh, reps. So let's say you're doing, you know, let's say a squat. Okay. Just for ease of, or a lunge or something, you're going to do maybe eight repetitions you know, three to four sets of that exercise before moving on. And maybe you're combining into supersets or giant sets or whatever, but typically eight repetitions per group, eight to 12 repetitions per, per exercise is where I find is, is, you know, you have the least likelihood of injury. It's kind of what you're able to do and punch out really easily that week. Um, when we move into week two, of course, towards the end of week one, and then kind of at the beginning of week two, we see this really big rise in estradiol, right? This is this big, ana- like estrogen, of course, anabolic hormone, all about growth. Um, and it's trying to really push that follicular, like, so there can be that one follicle that's really developing. Um, this is a week where I like to, um, lift heavier. So, uh, Mm. and I'll also say the other hormonal, the other hormone to consider this week is, um, is testosterone. Testosterone peaks this week as well. So, I love still, again, lifting heavy, but if the weight is heavier, that means that my set, like the amount of repetitions I'm going to punch out is going to be less, right? So Mm -hmm. let's say on the squat, just for an example, uh, 50, like let's say I did 50 pounds on the squat in week one. Well, if now I'm only doing five repetitions, I could do, my number can be higher than 50. So maybe I'll try 60 or 65, let's say, but I'm only going to be doing five to seven reps of it. So I really, really love a high, high weight, low rep count in this week. In terms of cardio, your question around cardio, I think was well, uh, well placed here as well. This is a week where I tend to counsel women away from burst training. And it's, mm. it's precisely because of the estradiol surge. Estrogen, as you know, uh, you know, creates ligamentous laxity. So in the ligaments, let's say in the shoulders, in the knee, in the ankles, in the wrist, like everywhere, spinal, you know, all the spinal stabilizing ligaments, they tend to be a little bit more, we'll say loosey goosey than they are any other time in the cycle because you have this really sharp 
change uh, the sharp concentration in estrogen in the body. So there is a higher incidence of or, or, or propensity for in, uh, for injury um, when you're doing things like sprinting or hit training or, mm. you know, uh, any type of explosive like jumping squats, things like that. So I typically will say you can still do the cardio if you, you know, if that's your goal, but I like to, I like to change the type of cardio in this week only. So this is where we might bring it down to like a low intensity, steady state. So that's like, if you're, if you're a runner, that just might be like a flat hill jog, right? Or if you're on an elliptical, it's like the same tension, let's say all the way through on your 30 or 40 or whatever, you know, minute, um, cardio activity that you're doing. Um, and then all the other weeks really, uh, there's no, um, there's, you know, there's no limitation in terms of hit. It's just in that second week, um, mm -hmm. because we have this really, really big change, um, mm -hmm. in estrogen do, concentration. Yeah. Do you think one thing I've thought about with ovulation is it, this is really the time that we're going to get a massive surge of testosterone. Like this is our, our, t our testosterone's like glory moment is in that ovulation window. So do you feel like when testosterone's on the scene, our ability to build muscle is going to be enhanced or is it going to be more that our craving to build muscle is going to be more enhanced? That's a really good question. I think with the testosterone and estrogen peaking, what we know is that those are very stimulatory to the motor cortex in the brain. So in some ways, we're like firing on all cylinders, right? So the motor cortex is more activated. So of course, we, the motor cortex in the brain, uh, for those of you that are maybe unaware, this is the... Um, this is the area in the brain that controls movement. Mm -hmm. So you are going to be very well primed to be lifting heavy in this week because of the brain activation, let's say under the influence of testosterone and estrogen. And to your question around, can you build more muscle because testosterone is surging? I think that there is some truth to that. So, at, you know, one of the things that we want to do is we want to, in, in you know, many other areas in, in our lives, we want to get out of vicious circles. But this is a yes. this is a circle that we kind of want to get into where it's like the well heavier said. you. Yeah. The heavier that you lift, the more testosterone is going to be produced as an indirect consequence of be, having to maintain that muscle. Yep. So I think that the mechanical stimulus of lifting heavy all through the cycle is justified. But in particular this week, because you have that spike in testosterone, your may potentially your capacity under the influence of having that motor cortex activation for new mo muscle patterns or heavier or, or a heavier load is going to be augmented. And uh, you have the energy, right? You're going to have right. sort of the energy to put towards yeah. doing a, a much more vigorous or rigorous uh, a workout. So I think that there is some truth to what you're saying in terms of because we see testosterone spiking, we can actually go harder at the gym because of the influence that it has in maintaining muscle mass. Yeah. And one thought I've had, and I've talked to several trainers about this, is that when we look at exercise, we typically look at it in a weekly way, like yeah. you do three, three days a week of this, one day a week of that. And when you start to look at our hormones, 
I think women should be looking at this in a monthly basis. And when I look at that five day period, there's a part of my hormonal brain that says, well, what if one day you go in and you do uh, biceps and then the next and you go hard, like heavy weights, low reps to your point. The next day you do a bunch of squats. So you're going to really work on glutes and 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 your um your quads. Next day, you're going to go in on pecs. So you could take that five days and really chunk it down into specific body groups and really target them with heavy weights. It, it's just a thought I've had. Um, I, this is where I wish I had a regular cycle again. I'm like, I want my cycle I would love back. to experiment with that. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love Yeah. So as a cycling woman, I mean, what do you think of that? I think that we want to be trying to, uh, to your point, I think that we want to be trying to hit uh, different muscle groups several times a week. So I do like after there's been, you know, after we've established like a foundational, you know, let's call it foundation of strength in, in an individual, in a woman. So, you know, if there, I know there's a question in, in our, uh, you know, that came in, it's like, I'm 55 and I want to start lifting weights. Well, the first thing is we're not going to give you kettlebells and and barbells. We're going to, you know, you're going to go to the machines and you're going to learn the pattern of, of movement. So once we have a foundational kind of nerve neuromusculoskeletal basis of strength. You have that connection from the brain to the body and the body to the brain. Um, then we can start playing around with what you're talking about, which is like hitting muscle groups several times a week. And it looks like the research shows that as long as you get to close to muscle fatigue, so it actually doesn't, you know, when, when I was in school, it was like, you have to lift heavy and that's the only way that you're going to build muscle. And that's not necessarily true. So that's why Mm. I love the manipulation of these sets over the course of the cycle, because as long as you get close to muscle fatigue or muscle Mm. failure, whether that is 15 reps at a lighter rate or five reps at a heavier weight, you are going to be able to contribute to muscle hypertrophy. And this is, uh, I'm going to say his name wrong, but it's Brad Schoenfield um, is the researcher that has really kind of brought this about as well as this idea of getting to 10 sets per muscle group per week as a, as a means for hypertrophy. So if you like, let's say in that five days, let's say, let's say you trained four, uh, you know, times it's like two upper body, two lower body. Well, you'd want to make sure that you've, you've had at least 10 sets of over the course of those two training days, 10 sets of squats, right? So you Mm. want to, or, or, you know, let's say it's glutes that you're trying to build. So it might be a squats, lunges, hip thrusters, you know, uh, Bulgarian split squats, whatever. So you want to make sure that you're hitting that muscle group at least 10 times, uh, in a, in about a week period. So, you know, to your point around five days, uh, in order to kind of hit that point of, of building the muscle, building the muscle up and having hypertrophy there. So you could do, uh, like squats, you could go after legs on a Monday and let's say you're on day 10 of ovulation or day 11, um, of your cycle, you could do legs on Monday. And then on Wednesday, you come back to legs and and glutes again with the, with same kind of concept. Let's go in strong with heavy weights during this time. But to your point, because estrogen is still very, very present during ovulation, we would want to go slow. We wouldn't want to do a lot of burst activity, maybe not uh, kettlebells, uh, you know, always scare my, my brain a little bit just because they can be so much swinging movement that can hurt discs and, 
tendons, but I understand that they can also be great muscle builders. So you would want to do those movements slower because of estrogen being in there, but heavier because maybe you have testosterone and then alternate every other day that same muscle group. Would you think that would be a really good way to go after ovulation? Yeah, I do. And the other the other thing that I wanted to mention around estrogen's impact is on the tendon, it makes it stiffer. So we're actually so it makes the ligaments a bit more lax, but the tendons get stiffer. So you're actually very well suited to lift heavy the you know, to your point around the kettlebells and like the swinging. I think that there's a lot of particularly when it comes to hamstring work, like deadlifts and let's say even kettlebell swings, there's a lot of, I mean, there's some glutes and stuff in there as well, but you know, the, the hamstrings are our big primary movers there. I, I find that a lot of, I would say people in general, but women, because we talk to women and our clients are women. And my observation has been about women don't activate their hamstrings well. So mm. even on like deadlifts, let's say, like whether it's a trap bar deadlift, sumo deadlift, like it doesn't matter the type of deadlift. What I find is that there's a lot of, um, we'll call it, I don't know if this is the right term, but like escape through the back. Like you'll see mm. people initiating the movement through the lumbar spine, right? Yes. And I don't know if you've ever seen this in, in clinic. We used to always test people. I'm like, show me your squat. And it's like, you know, <laughs> like people will get their chest on their knees, but their oh, hips yeah. haven't moved. And it's like, this is not a squat. This is just like a flexion of the, like a hundred percent flexion of the hips. So I think that there's something to be said around. And I was actually just having a conversation about this earlier today around like pre uh, maybe prehab is the right word or like an Mm. activation circuit before you start lifting. Like everyone wants to get to the glamour muscles. Everyone wants to start lifting, but can we maybe think about how we're going to activate, let's say the hamstrings, like the posterior chain, if you're doing like this, maybe you do squats and lunges and stuff on day one, and then you come back to it on day three and it's a lot of hamstring work, deadlifts, that kind of thing. Um, But really thinking about creating that neural connection because you're right sometimes in the gym you watch people and you're like oh no that that disc is gonna blow if you keep doing (laughs) that and you keep adding weights to that to that those plates like the amount of you know in when we look at um neurologically if let's say I were to shine a if someone's had a concussion let's say and we shine a light in the eye and like the eye, what the, what, what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to have a contraction of the pupil and it's supposed to stay contracted. But if someone who's had a concussion, what we see is something called sympathetic escape, right? So we see the parasympathetic contraction of the pupil. And then because the sympathetics are so activated, the pupil just blows out again. So mm-hmm. I don't know if this is the right term, but I'm using escape kind of in an, in an analogous way where sometimes I'll see someone initiating a deadlift from their low back when it's like your butt isn't low enough and you're Mm. not thinking about your hamstrings. You're just thinking, okay, I got eight to do. Let me just go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You know, it's like stop lifting from your low back, get your butt down, straighten out and learn to learn how to stabilize the spine and then initiate the movement. And that if so, if we tie that into what I heard in that is improper movement with you as you're doing your kettlebells or you're doing your workouts, do you feel like in the cycle that lack of attention to detail around how you're actually doing that exercise you're going to be more prone to injury at ovulation because of estrogen causing those tight tendons? Yeah, I think that I think that if there's a time in the cycle where you're maybe more prone to injury, it's probably going to be in the luteal phase of the cycle because the motor cortex is not as excitable. Mm. So this would be 
And that doesn't mean, ladies, that you shouldn't train in the second half no. of your cycle. Do not take that as the conclusion no. of the statement. But if you are doing a new program, let's say, the luteal phase is not the ideal time to start it, you know, because no. your motor cortex is not as activated. That doesn't mean that you can't do movement patterns that you've already primed the neuromusculoskeletal system to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but starting a new program in the luteal phase is less than optimal. Yeah. 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 And you don't want to bring cortisol in in the luteal phase either. You don't want a lot of that. So otherwise you're going to tank progesterone, which we see in, I mean, as a athletic woman, I mean, I was in my twenties, I was a competitive tennis player and the amount of stress and strain that I went through training and many of the women on the tennis team, we all lost our cycle. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, because we are just being pushed to that limit. So, So then do you feel like in this is another thought I've had is, is there a better part of the cycle to do more endurance? Like, what do you do with the woman who wants to run a half marathon? Um, Are there parts of the cycle where we can actually do better with longer runs? I think that all through the cycle is great for uh, steady state. So if she's an endurance runner, I think there's no time that she can stay away from it. Um, I will caution that I find that, you know, especially the endurance runners, uh, they tend to, my marathon runners, uh, they tend to, uh, we'll say only train in that realm, like in that vertical, which is like steady state cardio. And then they will forsake other things like the Mm -hmm. lifting, like the weight training. And as we'll get to, I think in perimenopause, this is an incredibly important consideration where we need to be lifting weights. So for an endurance woman, someone who loves to run, uh, my cardio bunnies that are listening, I'm not taking it away. I'm just saying that the hit, (laughs) just, just lay off the hit in week two, um, because of the, uh, we'll say, uh, tendency. It's not all the time, but there's a tendency for the ligaments to be a little bit more loosey goosey. So we do tend to see in the literature that we see more, uh, you know, catastrophic blowouts of ligamentous injuries. Like in, you know, I I talked about this in my book in the Betty body, but in the ACL, um, ligaments in the in the knee, which is a very mm-hmm. important stabilizing uh, uh, set of ligaments in the knee, tend to be blown out in female athletes in that week too, because they don't, they don't, you know, if they're athletes, they're just training all the time and there's no consideration really for the cycle. So I do like to stay away from explosive types of movement, uh, like cardio types of movement, like the sprinting and the whatever, uh, you know, the pellet, the orange theory and all that kind of stuff uh, in in week two of the cycle. Which I just want to point out, like, this is mind blowing when you stop and you think about it, because I, I mean, I joined Orange Theory years ago. And I just went, I didn't think like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this during ovulation, my ovulation window. Like this is, this is why I love conversations like this because women get injured and I, and I want to go into the perimenopausal woman especially gets injured and we don't realize that there's a hormonal connection to that. Um, So also my thought, what do you think about the week before your period when progesterone's coming in and I, I progesterone really makes us feel inner um yeah. 
and we not we don't have that same drive to go after the the marathon to up our weights. I really feel like that's the time that we should nurture ourselves more and go into yoga, more hiking. But as women, we push through that that week so in so many different ways and working out is one. But if what do you feel about for cardio and weights during that week? I personally am a huge yoga like up your yoga that week, but is there anything else we need to consider on those two things? Yeah, sure. So that actually is beautiful because that finishes up the menstrual cycle, like how you should train through the cycle. Yeah. So in week three, you know, so you have this ovulation, you know, ovulation happens, the egg is released, hopefully. But right before ovulation, of course, estrogen tanks, right? It comes Mm -hmm. right back down. And then in week three, it starts to rise again. So it doesn't rise as high as it does in week two, but it does come back up for that secondary rise. And then it's like a sustained sort of peak for about a week. So in week three, it kind of looks hormonally like week one, where we have low estrogen at the beginning, and then we have a rise in estrogen towards the end. So I like to return if you're lifting weights back to that eight to 12 rep range, like a nice moderate range. And then in week four, and then like any type of cardio that you like. And then in week four, for the weights, this is where, I, you know, to your point around kind of taking it easy, I like to drop back on the weights, but up mm. the reps. So it's a lighter weight, but it's a higher rep. So like 15 to 20 reps, something, even 30 reps, something like that. Again, you're still trying to get close to fatigue, but it's a different way of fatiguing the muscle. And the beautiful thing about a high rep, low weight workout, uh, particularly in that week four, is a lot of women do, as you said, like they feel like kind of slow and lethargic. Maybe they feel inflamed. Maybe they're moody. They feel a little, you know, holding onto a little bit of like water and like maybe their breasts are a little tender. So as we are, the the nice thing about every time you contract a muscle, uh, and this is very true in week four, if you're training this week with a higher rep count, is you release something called a myokine, which is uh, part of the immune system and it has anti-inflammatory properties to it. So you can still, through your exercise regime, help to modulate and help to improve some of the symptoms of PMS if you're experiencing them. Mm. And you're not pushing. It's not like, you know, it's like tits up and we're doing like you know crazy, you know, we're doing like a hundred pounds that. or whatever on the squat. It's, it's a little bit easier, right? So you might right. say, okay, I was doing 65 pounds. I'm just making numbers up here, but 65 pounds in week two for a squat. And now I'm going to do 20 pounds, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to hold two, you know, 20 pound or two 10 pound uh, dumbbells, let's say, and I'm going to do 30 reps of that, right? Every time you punch that out, uh, you are going to be helping to reduce the inflammatory response there. So I do like other forms of exercise as well. Like some women don't feel like working out. Like, let's just be honest. Some people are like, I, if I look at a weight room, I'll kill someone. So I, I do like to honor the, you know, the individual kind of preferences of, 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 you know, if you are someone who loves yoga and that really helps with your mental state, your clarity, and let's be honest, like some yoga, like yoga is a workout. Like I'm always oh, yeah. sore after yoga. Yep. So I think that there's, there's a time and a place for that as well. If that really makes you feel good and you sort of feel like you're getting the energy flowing and you have a nice, there's a lot of isometric holds in yoga that are really, really great. Um, I think that that's absolutely, there's absolutely a place, a time and a place for that as well. What I, what I typically, what I like to push for um, and again, with some leniency to the individual and the pre- and the preferences of the individual is it, 
to weight train as often as you can through the cycle, but just, um, you know, alter it based on where you are and how you're feeling. So we can do lighter days where maybe in the luteal phase as a whole, the goal is not to get any personal records. We're not punching out any new PRs here. We're just maintaining what we've developed. And then when we get back to the follicular phase, that's our push. That's the gas. That's when we can be a bit more aggressive with our weight training in that, especially in that week two, where we're trying to up the weight a little bit. Um, And then we can kind of just maintain, develop the, you know, develop the strength and all of that that happens in the luteal phase and the adaptation. And then again, push when we're back into the follicular phase again. Which is exactly the way we do it with fasting. It's like exactly the same thing. It is. Yeah. Like when those hormones go low, we can push things a little bit more, but as they're high, then now we, it's like they show up. We got to know their personality and how to match whatever food, fasting, workouts, social engagements to that. And to your point on the um, week before your period, the thing that I have found to be the most mind blowing for me as a woman is that I pushed through that week in so many ways for so many months, for so many years. Every time I had a carb craving, every time I didn't feel like doing something, I would create a story in my head of laziness and why couldn't I do that? And I I really want women to understand that you are a different hormonal beast that week before your period. And once you understand the pattern that's right for you, it'll blow your mind that once your actual cycle starts, you actually start feeling better. Like even on day one, like, oh, yeah. You start oh, bleeding, yeah. bleeding and you're like, oh, hallelujah. It's like an orgasm. It's like a it's release. Like a- <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, it's here. <laughs> and one more one more thing I will I will say in my in my quest to inspire women to lift weights uh, at whatever age they are in in the luteal phase. We are also a bit more insulin resistant, right? Just typically mm-hmm. a bit more insulin resistant than we are in the follicular phase. So one of the things, of course, that you can do is whenever you are weight training and you are putting on more muscle, taking up glucose from the system is an, at least into the skeletal muscle is an insulin independent uh, process. So Mm. you can, the more muscle that you can put on over the course of your life, the better glucose disposal agent you will be. And you don't need insulin to do it because in the muscle, we see glucose taken up by a different, um, uh, it's like a, a a pat it's called glut four. So we see this passive, uh, movement of glucose from the, uh, from the plasma into the, into the, into the cell and it's done without insulin. So the more, um, the more muscle that you can put on, the more insulin sensitive, let's say, you can stay in that luteal phase. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And I think that the trend towards muscle, I hope for women, like I hope the women listening to to us understand that you got to build muscle, you got to. And I really think, which leads us to the next topic, which is after 40, pick those weights up, girl, like yes. put put the running shoes down, pick up the weights. Your menopausal symptoms will be dramatically different if you do that. So let's talk a little bit about what happens after 40, because I can tell you as a 52 year old woman, nobody tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, guess what? In your 40s, everything's going to hormonally change. And yeah. so every part of your lifestyle needs to change. Yeah, I think um 
really starting at about 35, we start Mm. to see changes in the uh, concentration and the amount of progesterone that we that we produce every month. So progesterone only shows up in the luteal phase, uh, helps us with our sleep, helps us chill out, activates GABA receptors. It it turns into a a neurosteroid, allopregnenolone, and then activates the GABA receptors, which is why sometimes in the luteal phase, at least in week three, uh, you'll find that you get really towards the end of week three when when progesterone tends to peak is you'll you'll have some of the best sleep of your life and you're a little bit more like it helps to kind of alleviate it should help to alleviate anxiety feelings of nervousness depression that kind of thing so in our 40s uh as we are just naturally as a just as a natural consequence of aging, starting to see this sort of stepwise decline in progesterone over the years, one of the first things that I'll uh, usually ask, and people have a lot of pushback on this because no one wants to admit that they're anxious or depressed, is they'll say, yeah, like I'm feeling, I got worry more. I have a, a hard time turning my mind off at night. Yep. Like I, I, yep. I, I'm at the end of the day, like replaying the events or like I'm just this constant, like it's this worrier kind of uh, mentality and this inability to shut off the mind in the evening. That's usually kind of a clinical indication that maybe the progesterone is starting to decline. Yeah. That Um, was so, that was so politely said. (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, where did fucking progesterone go? Like, man, like if I could go back to my 25 year old self, I would just love on progesterone. I would thank her every day because my four, when I was 45 and she wasn't there for me, I felt like, like, where did you go bestie? (laughs) We've been best friends for so long and you just dumped me. <laughs> She's like a girlfriend breakup. Yeah. Uh yeah, it, it's hard. It's hard. And I think that it's and then and then you and then in kind of as you progress through your 40s, there's almost like kind of three or four stages of, of perimenopause, right? So you start yes. to see this like contraction of the cycle initially, where let's say you've been like a, you know, I I've always been like a, you know, 29 and a half to 30 day girl. Like I've kind mm. of always, you know, and then like now I'm noticing I'm kind of approaching mid forties now. I'm like, Oh, I, I I've lost a day. Like I'm 28 now. Like I'm always, I mean, oh. still within normal range, but it's like, yeah. Oh, I'm shorter, like a day yeah. shorter now. And then actually I have, um, I think I mentioned this to you last time. One of my ovaries is a little is like a little shorter than my so like some like every other month it it's lags. like tw- yeah I it's, it's a laggy <laughs> one so it's like every other month it's like twenty seven and then and then it's twenty eight so my my I can't remember which one it is it might be my right ovary anyway, so she's so just does like, that mean like our ovaries are like our children like just because we have them doesn't mean their personalities are the same <laughs> they're sisters they're not twins yeah they're. <laughs> They're a little different, but yeah. Yeah. I I never thought of that, but you're right. You know, and sometimes you feel a little bit of pain in one and then not in the other. Yeah, Yeah. 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 And I actually, um, I know when I've ovulated, I feel it. Um, it's, uh, there's like a little bit of cramping for me that not everybody has that, but you know, I, and I remember when I was having my, uh, you know, when I was trying to conceive my children, like I felt, I was like, I'm pregnant. Like I knew it. I knew the moment yeah. it happened. I was like, I'm pregnant. I, I know it even before, you know, all yep. the tests or whatever could tell me that I was pregnant. I knew it. Yeah. Um, me, me too, by the way, with both of them, I was just like, boom, like yeah. within it, within days I do. So very, I love very that. true. Yeah. I love I know. that. I love it's that. so great. But here's what I see in perimenopausal women 
is that as estrogen goes down, collagen goes down. Yeah. And, and yeah, that, your skin texture and yeah, yep. hair and yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Skin, hair, you're more prone to injury. Injuries hang around a lot more. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like women over, I say over 40, I agree with you that 35, we're starting to see a lot of perimenopause symptoms. Do you feel like that's the time to up collagen and up it throughout the whole cycle? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, I think in the context of muscle building, collagen is a terrible form of protein. Mm. So um, it doesn't do anything. It's not anabolic to skeletal tissue, but it is, as your to your point, very important for skin, hair, and nails. Um, I, you know, I don't know if I have a, a, a cyclical cadence around collagen supplementation. I typically will have some collagen, you know, I'm 44 now, so I will have collagen almost every day. Mm. Um, so I'll usually, but I don't count it to like, if I, I usually will tr- like, you know, train in the morning, that's kind of the time I get to train and I'll put some whey protein because I know that that's anabolic to skeletal muscle. Mm-hmm. meaning it'll stimulate growth. And I'll also put a little scoop of collagen in there because I know that, you know, I've been sweating and it's just like the time that I'm going to remember it. Do I, I don't cycle it in any way, but I do think that it is an important consideration for women because that's one of the things that I hear. They're like, you know, I'm 45 or I'm 48. And like, my skin is just not the same. Oh, yeah. Like I can pinch it now. It's yeah. like, it doesn't have the same suppleness. Um, so I do think that collagen is important for, um, and even just our joints, right. And our ligaments. Mm-hmm. So this is yeah. also like from an inter, like we can talk about it being vain and I'm totally a vain woman. So I'm like, yeah, I want good skin, <laughs> hair and nails. So I'm totally yeah. taking the collagen, but also the structural elements that allow for the, for the muscles to move. Right. It's really important for our discs. It's important for our cartilage. It's important for our bones. It's important for everything. So yeah. I, I typically take a scoop and I don't, I'm trying to think of what the scoop is now. I want to say maybe 20 grams of hydrolyzed, hydrolyzed collagen, maybe? I don't yeah, know. The, the, yeah. the powder I use, I only know the protein is like 17 grams of, yeah. of protein. But your point is really well taken that just because it's 17 grams of protein doesn't mean that it's the best protein source for um, your muscles, for your muscles. But it is exactly. a really great, it, it is a really great source for your ligaments and your yes. collagen and your discs and your skin and your hair and your nails. So we yeah. want to be thinking about different proteins for different goals, right? We want yeah. like, in my opinion, animal protein and the, a derivative of it, whey protein is going to be the most bioavailable full complement of amino acids for musculoskeletal repair and for uh, muscle protein synthesis. Collagen doesn't do that. Collagen does not do anything for our muscles. It's just Mm -hmm. really all about kind of the structural elements that we care about with collagen. And do you think this is another thought that I've had when I watch 48 year old women or women in their after 45, they're getting injuries, perhaps athletic injuries, and they're not resolving as quickly. Yeah. That is that is a trend that I see over and over and over again. And so what I noticed in clinical practice was if we could bring in some collagen and even mega dose with collagen, like two, three scoops of collagen a day, we could start to help resolve these injuries. Um, I'm even next week speaking at a chiropractic conference here, The Wave, and I'm going to show oh, chiropr- nice. yeah, I'm going to show chiropractors how 
we need to pay attention to the changes in collagen and the changes in hormones around even something as simple and as powerful as a chiropractic adjustment, because it really makes a difference for overall integrity of the joint. So, and when you're talking about injuries, you're talking about like ligamentous injuries, joint injuries, that yes. kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That totally makes a hundred percent sense. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that we know about those, those structures, unfortunately, particularly ligaments, very poor blood supply. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you have a muscle, you have a muscle injury, we know that like there's a lot of blood that feeds that muscle because it's functional contractile tissue. It's how we move. Ligaments, unfortunately, don't have a really great blood supply. So they often take longer naturally anyway, whether you're 25 Mm -hmm. or 55. But to your point, when you're older, of course, we have let's say, uh, and especially in our, in our menopausal, uh, years, we start to behave, at least our cardiovascular, cardiopulmonary system starts to behave more like men. So that, you know, Mm -hmm. under the influence of estrogen in our reproductive years, that does positively influence the vasoconstriction and vasodilation of our arteries, which is why actually, when we just look at cardiovascular disease, we see that most like men will get it earlier than women. There's a kind of this phasic shift, like men will get it 10 to 15 years earlier than women. And it's partially because women spend about 40 years or so menstruating, right? So we have this constant turnover and under the influence of estrogen, we keep these, we keep the ability to vasodilate and vasoconstrict, uh, Uh, more active. And then in a sort of lower estrogen environment, like you see in menopause, we do start to behave more like men. So, you know, when you say, you know, there's women that in their forties and fifties, let's say who have these injuries that are just these niggling injuries that don't seem to clear up. Part of that is because of the, uh, we'll say reduction in blood flow generally to most structures, which is why things like, you know, making sure that you're going for low level, like low level activity all the time. I'm a huge fan of like going for walks and, you know, steady state cardio and even the burst training and the weightlifting, like all of that is all good for circulatory flow yoga. As you mentioned, Pilates, all of these things, these are all very, very important for injuries. Like let's say of the ankle, of the shoulder, of the knee, where there's a lot of ligamentous structures, I do like to do things, and I I would love your your thoughts on this too, um, just knowing your training and your background and expertise. I love to try to bring as much uh, blood flow in there as possible. So the collagen is really important. And I would also layer on things like red light therapy and heat and trying to just as much as we can bring blood, like it's almost contrary to the rice, which we know, like the rest ice compression which yeah. we, I was taught in chiropractic school, which has now been completely outdated and we don't yeah. do it anymore, no. but bringing more heat into the area uh, to try and, and and get the blood in the area to try to clean up and, and, and heal the, uh, you know, the, the, the problem that's in the ligament, well, let's say. All you've got to do is take a 47 year old woman and put her in a hot yoga class, not like a crazy hot one, but I can tell you when I first go into a hot yoga class, I feel like I'm 25 again because of all the warming up now too hot. And I'm going to tear people's heads off because I'm like, you know, I could go into like a more hot flash kind of place. But I do believe to your point, warming up is really important. The other the and getting heat and circulation in there because you don't have 
as these hormones that are supporting really good fluid movement of the joints. And there's a whole a whole bunch of reasons behind that. Second thing that I would say is that I feel like um, you, as you get older, as you go through the perimenopausal years and those ovaries are starting to switch, shut down and switch the job of making sex hormones over to the adrenal glands, we have another challenge, which is if you're pushing it too hard, you're double stacking stress on the adrenals and now all the hormones go away. And, and that is something that I absolutely dealt with throughout all my 40s. I mean, I kept modifying and modifying and modifying my workouts because I was watching these hormones change. And if I didn't change my workout with them, the injuries kept piling on top of each other. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing, salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. LMNT also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. I love that you brought this up because I think that this is such a big consideration in, you know, oftentimes in our thirties, twenties and thirties, it's about child rearing and marriage. And then in our forties and fifties, like those children are getting older are, you know, they're, they're teenagers, which is a whole set of different challenges that you, as a (laughs) parent that you have to, you know, sort of go through. And then you also have other stressors like aging parents, let's say, Mm -hmm. or fat, like death of, you know, important people in your life that starts to happen, unfortunately with more and more frequency. Um, So it is, to your point, very important to be paying attention to stress management in your 40s and 50s, because as you said, the ovaries are like, I'm done. I've been here working hard like a maniac. I'm ready to retire. I'm going (laughs) to hand over my job description and my, you know, my, my, all my duties over to the adrenals who are now going to be tasked with making, you know, making the the majority of our sex hormones going forward. So if you already have sort of a higher sympathetic load, let's say, uh, you are going to be at a, we'll say, um, you know, a disadvantage uh, versus someone who is is managing their stress really well. So there's a couple right. of a couple of strategies that we might talk about around how you might how you might mitigate some of that stress. First would be from a nutritional perspective. One and there, this was a question like, is a refeed day important? Mm, and this yeah. is actually a really beautiful time. Like if you are getting injured and it's not getting better, and you're like, oh my god, I'm going to kill everybody. Like I'm moody, I'm anxious, my performance in the gym is starting to tank my energy, my sleep, my libido, it may be time for a refeed and a refeed day. uh, What we mean by that, there's a couple of different definitions. So if you are doing kind of like a low carb ish diet, a refeed can either be a, uh, uh, like a carbo- like a keto refeed, meaning that you, you don't change the macros, you just eat more of everything. So it's more of like a caloric mm. 
bump, mm. or you can do a carbohydrate refeed. Yeah. So you completely switch over the macros. Whereas before you might've been doing much more low carbs, much higher fat, that kind of thing. You switch it over to I prefer to do like a high protein, high carbohydrate refeed. And that tends to help a lot with the sleep, especially if you backload it in, in later in the day. So if you have a lot of the carbohydrates, let's say most of your carbohydrates towards the end of your day, uh, that tends to, you know, elicit the serotonin production, which helps you feel sleepy. And then you're giving your adrenals enough, uh, substrate, uh, to be able to kind of last the night, because one of the mm-hmm. things I, I I hear this all the time, I would love to know if this is the same for you, uh, Mindy, is that women will say I wake up all the time between like, like I wake up in a shock between like one and four in the morning, like that's yep. the time when they wake up. And usually what that means is that the adrenals have kind of run out of fuel, right? Mm. So we have this stress response, this sort of sympathetic response where we have adrenaline and cortisol and all these other things, noradrenaline, blah, 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 kind of increasing in their concentration, which brings us out of our sleep prematurely. So you can help by having a bit more carbohydrates. So in, you know, to the question about is a refeed day important? You're, you know, you want to answer the question, do I, am I seeing any dips in my performance at the gym? If yes, maybe it's warrant, we warrant mm. a refeed day. Well said. Dips in non-scale uh, you know, I call them non-scale victories. So like, is your energy dipping, sleep dipping, libido dipping, you know, you feel like you're stressed, like you're waking up in the middle of the night, you can't initiate and or maintain sleep, a carb, a, a refeed might be warranted there as well. Yeah. Yeah. I would say I also strongly like it patterned to your hormonal cycle, to your menstrual cycle. And, um, I've, you know, we've talked a lot about the week before your period and how important you're more insulin resistant. There's a reason for that. Your body wants glucose to be higher. You definitely don't want to be doing fasting and keto during that week. Correct. And a lot of women who get obsessed with fasting and keto forget that, or they don't know that. And then that's where we got a problem. But the other part that I've been really playing with is during ovulation because I'm seeing in the women that I'm working with that a lot of times we need more carbs then. And when we add in more carbs during ovulation, that ovulation goes a lot smoother. And for all the women out there that are like, but you know, when do I use keto and fasting to lose weight? You can use it in week one and you can use it in week three. Great. But But the thing about ovulation is that you definitely, when you up your carbs, if you are going into ketosis during that time, which I'm seeing a lot of women do, they up their carbs and they wake up in ketosis. That is their body saying, hey, you need to give me more carbs during this time. So I feel like we can use blood sugar, we can use ketones and map that and know ourselves. And if you go into ketosis on a higher carb diet during ovulation, that's what your body is telling you, your hormones are telling you, you need. Well said. I could not agree more because one of the things, of course, that we know is that the, um, you know, if you are too aggressive, let's say in your, um, uh, fasting or keto or whatever in that week, your mitochondria in your ovaries are going to be like, we can't, she can't get pregnant right now. There's not enough food. So we're just going to hold off on this, this egg and we'll just wait and see next month. So there's, if you're too aggressive with the fasting, too aggressive with the keto, let's say in in week two, you can absolutely impact ovulation. So I do, I, I, I really appreciate what you're saying because I think that there's, 
Uh, and I used to do this too. So I'm not poo-pooing on anyone. Like I, this has been my own journey too. I used to white knuckle my way through yep. the whole cycle. It's like, yep, I have to do too. it this way because this is how I'm supposed to do it. This is what the guys are doing. And this is yep. what I got to do. And I think that there's such a freedom in, in saying, okay, like, I'm just going to give myself more carbohydrates to make ovulation a pleasant experience because there yes. are a lot of people who have that middle smirch. They have that pain in the middle of the cycle or they become anovulatory. They skip it because they don't have enough carbohydrates to drive the process of the follicular and egg development. Yeah. Yeah. A thousand percent. And I think, you know, the, for the women listening, there can be this moment of, but wait, what am I supposed to do? There's a lot of theories getting thrown out here, but this is the point is the more you engage in conversations like this, the more you understand where the hormones are coming in and out. And then you play with these principles, the whole goal for every human on the planet, but especially women is we have to be our own N of one. We have to experiment on ourselves. And this is why you grab a CGM, grab a measure your ketones, know what those patterns are throughout the, the menstrual cycle. And then you'll know where you need to refeed. Cause I have watched more women who have white knuckled to your point themselves through the whole cycle using keto and fasting, and they're not getting the ketone numbers that they want. And then we throw in a, a what I call nature's carbs, where we just throw in a high carb day and all of a sudden they go into ketosis and they're like, what? Why did that happen? Right. So we there is a lot more ebb and flow for sure. How there was a question about ketones, like how should I take ketones? I have a couple of I mean, first of all, I like my own body's ketones because it's free. Yes. So yes. <laughs> agreed. Being, so I like to make my own. But if I'm so do you supplement with exogenous ketones? Um, I will do it in the fasting window. So here's what I think is that we can't, if you add in exogenous ketones, when blood sugar is high, you're going against your physiology. Your physiology is blood sugar goes down. You move into a fat burner energy system. And the byproduct of that is making ketones. So I would never eat a meal and take exogenous ketones. But now we use it a ton in our community where you're at hour 16 and you want to maybe go to a 24 hour fast. You're not feeling so good. Okay, let's throw some exogenous ketones in and see if that gives us a little bit of a burst to get through the rest of the day. I also don't feel like it should be a daily habit. I feel like it's a it's a as needed splash it in every once in a while because uh, I don't, to your point about uh, I would like my body's own ketones. I don't want my body to ever stop making ketones. So if you give it too much of an exogenous resource, it may slow down how well it can make those ketones. Hmm. And I, okay. So I love to, uh, so I'm very aligned with you there. I typically will, if I'm, if I'm in the mood for a new record in the gym, <laughs> Ah. <laughs> you know, cause I, I tend to work out fasted. So I will work out in the morning. That's usually the time that I have to work out. So I'll have some ketones with my water, let's say as I'm, you know, 10, 20 minutes before. And then I am like wonder woman in the gym, like captain Marvel, strongest, you know, hero. I'm like pushing, you know, pu punching out like new PR. So I love it as an augment to my workout regimen. Mm. I also like it right before I record a podcast <laughs> because it's I, like it's like I, plant medicine. It is. It's like <laughs> I have all of this access to words that I've forgotten yep. and I'm so much more articulate. So I really love, and that's just my own little thing. Like I don't do it all the time, but 
you know, when there's like a really important podcast, there's a very technical podcast that I'm yeah. about to record or something. I'm, I have a little bit of ketones uh, there as well. Yeah. 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 And, and I'm again, I think these are all great times. The absolute time I'm opposed to it is when blood sugar is super high. So in, because- in a fed state. Yeah. In a fed state, if I was to eat lunch and then, oh, I've got a podcast interview an hour from now, and then I take my ketones, you would want to make sure if you had a CGM on that your blood sugar was down to its pre-meal moment before you would take those ketones. Otherwise, you're going against your biology, and I'm not a fan. Um, You know what? You brought up one one thing that I really want to chat about, and I haven't talked to anybody about this. But there is a lot of mixed messaging on do women work out in a fasted state or Mm -hmm. not? A lot of people, a lot of hormone experts out there really feel that women should have protein before they go to the gym. I, for my body, I do really well in a fasted state at the gym. And then I come home and I power up on protein. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. So there is a lot of discussion, we'll say, on uh, yeah. on how do you work out? And I think that the answer is it looks like it's easier or we'll say more optimal to work out with some protein and carbs in the body. So what does that look like? You have some proteins and carbs, maybe you have breakfast or something and your core body temperature rises, right? So that's also really good for your joints and your ligaments and your muscles, because if you work out in the, you know, in the morning, as I do, you have to be very careful not to injure yourself because you're stiff and you're not, your joints are not quite lubricated yet. Mm. So there does seem to be some evidence that suggests that in a fed state, your at least your performance in the gym and your, you know, which will translate to, you know, hypertrophy and physique building, if that's the goal, seem to be better in a fed state. Mm-hmm. That being said, not all of us can do that. So like yeah. the ideal time to work out is about two o'clock in the afternoon. Not everybody can do that all the time. Some of us are at work. We have school pickup and all. And for me, the way that my life, you know, typically plays out is that if I don't get it done in the morning, there's a less and less likelihood, like the longer that the day goes on, that it's going to happen because other things come up. Like I got to, I'm going to go for a bike ride with my kid, or I'm going to take them to soccer practice, or I have a call or I have, you know, whatever. So for me, I get it done in the morning. It's not optimal. I don't think to be in a fasted state. That being said, I always make sure that I'm getting enough protein over a 24 hour period so that you know, the net net is, is, it's, it's, I think it's kind of a wash. So I always make sure after my workout, there's at least 35 to 40 grams of protein in a protein shake. I have some carbohydrates. I add creatine, uh, which was a big question that yeah, came up. So we'll I, talk yeah, about creatine. Yeah, we got to go into that because a lot of people ask that question too. Let's put creatine in it. And then usually an hour to two hours later, I have breakfast and then I have lunch, let's say at two or one or whatever. And then I have dinner with the kids at, you know, whatever it is, five o'clock, six o'clock. So over the course of a 24 hour period, I'm getting, I'm making sure that I'm getting sufficient calories, which is important if you're, if you're trying to build muscle, you can't really build them in a deficit. It's harder to do Mm it. Um, and I'm also giving myself the enough sort of the minimum, I'm not just doing the minimum. I'm trying to do a surplus in protein in order to be able to maximize that muscle protein synthesis chemically from my diet, as well as the mechanical stimulus that I'm garnering from, um, Uh, from the gym. So I think that there, 
you can still like, listen, I have trained fasted for decades. Me too. I've, I've built muscle. So it's not yep. that you can't do it. Uh, it's just, if you have the luxury to choose, it seems like the literature suggests that being in a fed state is going to be better for your performance, better for your joints, better for your recovery. But if you're not able to do that, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't work out because that is far worse than mm. working out in a fasted state. And yep. I'll say that my preference also has, you know, and maybe this might be my adaptation. I don't know, but I don't like typically working out fed because I feel, no. I just feel full. I feel heavy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I prefer not worrying about my digestion while I'm lifting. Yeah. So that's just my own kind of like two cents there. But if you yeah. like the, the whole thing is work out whenever it works for you. Yes. And if you have the option to, to choose, then I would choose uh, fed over fasted. So I agree with you on that. And a couple of principles that I've been playing with, with different patients of mine and played on myself is the idea that uh, when we're in a state of autophagy, we are in a state of repair and breakdown. The body's getting rid of the things that don't work for it. Um, we know sleep stimulates autophagy. We know HIIT training stimulates autophagy. We know that fasting stimulates autophagy. And when we've been in a state of autophagy and we're fasting, we also know that there's going to be higher requirements for exercise from glucose. You're, those muscles are going to have to dump glucose that might have been stored in there. And if you have a carrying a lot of extra weight, it actually might burn more fat around those muscles in order to get access to stored glucose. So a trick that I have seen work over and over and over again is work out in a fasted state, whether it's cardio, whether it's, it's weightlifting. If you can even make sure you're in a state of autophagy and that works for you, that's a whole nother discussion and really empty out those muscles, break them down and then come home and power up on protein, get back into a state of mTOR. And now we're back into growth. What I am seeing in perimenopausal women is that is the key to muscle definition. So you're not only building muscle, but you've really broken down extra glucose that might be preventing and, and breaking down fat that might be preventing the muscle from revealing itself. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. But that is some a little hack that I have seen work really well for women that are like, why can't I get my muscles to show? I want more muscle definition. That's what I've seen. Yeah, I think that... Um too many women in their 40s are like, I'm just going to do what I did when I was 25 yes. and it should work. Right. Uh, so we do want to be thinking about, um, and, and I'll say this maybe in a slightly different way than you have, but I think we're saying the same thing is there needs to be, uh, build phases and cut phases. So mm. I think that there needs to be, you know, there's a question about, can I build muscle and lose fat? And it's like, yes, <laughs> you can, but maybe not as efficiently at the same time as if, say, yeah. as if you were to do them kind of separate, you know, at different times. So yep. I feel like, uh, for women, we've been, we've been scared and not just women. I think we've been like the, the conversation around mTOR the conversation around growth has been like, that equals cancer. You know, it's like, mm, you can never yeah. be in growth uh, because that, and, you know, we see like the, you know, maybe the, some of the blue zone research and some of these kind of longevity uh, researchers where they're always talking about this idea of like, how can we, how can we lengthen the life? How can we lengthen the life? Well, we're going to lengthen the life by suppressing mTOR. And the, 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 
problem that I haven't, and I, I've said this before, and I, I want someone to explain this to me because I can't seem to reconcile this, is that as we age, our protein requirements go up. Yes. So it doesn't make sense to restrict protein as we age because we need to be able to overcome the natural insulin resistance that sets in, the natural anabolic resistance that sets in in the muscles. So you need to have a greater and greater bolus of or stimulus of protein, let's say, in the in the in the case of like stimulating muscular muscles um, to grow. And so I like um I want people to not be scared of mTOR. It's, it's a, it is a pathway for growth, but when you are doing the right things in your life, right, you are lifting weights and then you feed your body because you're trying to build your muscle. This is not a bad thing. Uh, In the same way that I want women to kind of get over their fear of carbohydrates, you know, what what did you call them? Nature's, what did you say? I call them nature's carbs. Nature's carbs. Yeah. Villainize the processed carbs, but nature created some amazing carbs for, for all of us. Yes, they did. And I think that especially, and I'm guilty of this because when I was first in the keto world, I was like carbs of the devil. That that's yeah. why we have, but yeah. I've modified my position because especially as being a woman, you just can't always be, you can't always restrict carbs, you know, to no. our, we were talking about refeeds and why that's really important. And then these women that are like, my muscles are not, you know, full. I don't feel like I can see them. Well, part of the way that you're going to see them, you know, you you can work out and then you should feed them carbohydrates. Yes. You should feed them the nutrients that they have depleted during the workout, like protein, like creatine, like, like, like carbohydrates that are going to give you that, you know, what are the cool cats saying? Like that swole look, you know, like that, that the cool sort of, cats. you know, like, like I that. I don't know the cool cats and I definitely don't know that statement. I am definitely not a cool cat. I just observe them on Instagram. But, you know, like that kind of like, like filled out look, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you see this right bef- a, lot, a lot of times before photo shoots, like, uh, you know, female fitness models, let's say they'll do push-ups or they'll do squats. So they'll do like lateral raises because they're trying to just bring mm. some flow, some blood flow in there. But you can do that nutritionally as well. Like you can give yourself the carbohydrates and the muscle, uh, uh, pardon me, the protein to fill up, uh, let's say the muscle as well. Yeah. We really love absolutes is what I think. It's you know, like, humans do. They do. Yeah. We like absolutes. It's like, well, if I'm going to fast, then everything breaks the fast. You know, like, and right. if I'm going to weight train, I'm going to turn into the Hulk. And, if yes. you know, it's like, that's not the, the only two options are not the Hulk or a frail <laughs> sarcopenic, you know, <laughs> 90 year old like there's there's a happy right. medium somewhere to be found in the middle but you're so right you're so right it's such a good point women I mean I think humans we love extremes absolutes all the time yeah so do you do anything post-workout uh because that was also a question was supplementation after a workout do you yeah it's a cre- the creatine question yeah, came the up creatine. A lot. yeah yeah I love creatine so I think that women there's like a couple of foundational basics all women should be on we all should be on a magnesium we all mm-hmm. should be taking uh an omega-3 and if you don't have access to sunshine all the time you should be taking some type of d3k2 blend especially like where I live I live in a four season you know I live in Toronto so we get lots of summer we get lots of spring lots of fall but we also get a very cold and dark winter. So in those months, I'm making sure that 
there's, you know, because I don't have access to beautiful sunshine as you might, uh, you know, D3. <laughs> I do have access to beautiful <laughs> sunshine. All the time. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. I'm like, why do I live here? But anyway, D3 and K2 in the wintertime, uh, we do have excellent skiing. I will say that. Yeah. Uh, so for creatine, I think that this is, so those are the three kind of like basics that for women. And then if you're a woman who also wants to build muscle, I think that creatine is a very, very exciting supplement. So not only uh, do we see this to be a potent mitochondria, like it will up the efficiency of the mitochondria, but it's going to replace, it's going to help you produce more ATP, which is like the energetic mm currency that we all kind of trade in to increase your workout intensity, which of course is going to have knock on effects to being able to build more muscle. So, you know, those short, fast, explosive movements, if you're like a runner or if you're a weightlifter, because a lot of weightlifting can be short, fast, uh, explosive movements. And then of course, creatine is also a fuel source, right? Mm. So it's your, it's actually your body's first choice of energy when you're doing anaerobic activity. So like the all out sprinting, like mm. when you see like the Usain Bolts at like the hundred meter, 200 meter sprints, the first 10 seconds or so is that phosphocreatine system. So mm -hmm. you want to replace the creatine that's, that's, that's been depleted, let's say in, in those, uh, in those activities. So people will talk about, um, saturating the muscle cell, uh, with creatine. And I think that that's a good idea. So t the way that you'll do that is like, let's say five, uh, you know, like a, usually a scoop of creatine is about five grams. So you can do five grams in your protein shake over the course of like a month. And that should saturate the muscle cell. Okay. Um, and, uh, so I, and I typically take it after a workout. You can take I it before. I was just going to say, yeah. yeah. But in I typically an eating window, like in, yeah. you wouldn't do it in your fasting window. You could, I don't, I, you, you could, it's just, I don't remember to do it. <laughs> I just yeah. remember that I'm about to eat. So I'm like, Oh, I'll just put some in my smoothie. Yeah. I'll just put some, it's right beside my protein powder. So it just, I put it in there. And I think that it's actually, you know, the muscles right after a workout are actually primed to take the, you know, mm. to say, to take substrate up. So I like the idea of creatine post-workout, even though I know a lot of people talk about, um, you know, pre-workout creatine. And you can certainly do that as well. Um, mm. I just find that the post-workout, it works for me in terms of remembering it, which is yeah. also when we're thinking about yeah. habits over the long term, it's like, what's the thing that you can remember to do the most consistently? Will I remember yep. to do it before my workout? No. Will I remember because it's right beside my protein powder and that's exactly where I go to right after my workout? Yes. Yep. So... Yeah. Love, I love that. I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to have to add that in. I haven't been adding, I've been really obsessed on aminos right lately and adding in more aminos and looking at where that shows up for performance and moods for me. So have you noticed anything? Well, Oh, I've noticed a lot. So here's, what's really interesting about aminos. When you dive into understanding amino acids, you see that they are a precursor for two key neurochemicals in our body. They are a precursor for neurotransmitters and they're a precursor for hormones. And as women go through menopause, we're just getting more depleted on every front. So when we add these aminos back in, you start to see changes in mood, you start to see changes in energy, and I'm also seeing changes in muscle performance. Here's the trick. When you take an amino, you should feel like a, a mood lift within 20 to 30 minutes of taking that amino acid. So 
for example, a great combo, my new favorite combo to tie in what you said about exogenous ketones is I'll do a scoop of exogenous ketones and a scoop of perfect aminos. And I am buzzing and happy. And that is a great pre-workout drink. Doesn't elevate my blood sugar. And then I can go in and rock a workout and then come out of that workout and lean into a higher protein. I do do animal protein. I I don't feel like you can get the complete amino acid profile with a vegetarian diet. So I'll do an animal protein at that point. Um, So now the second part about aminos that is really interesting is it takes about four to six months of continual amino acid uh, supplementation in order to build your reserves back up. So you, it's like you go in and you pulse it to help with the neurotransmitter and hormone production, but then you got to stay with it at, at some point throughout your day for four to six months so that you can bring it back up. Really depends on how depleted you are. It has been a game changer for mental health and, and for for building muscle that I've seen in the menopausal women and perimenopausal women I've been working with. That's really with. interesting. I have never... Um... I have never used B, um, it's BCAAs you're talking about, branch chain amino yeah, acids. Yeah, yeah I've yeah. never used them in my training regimen. I don't know why. I have. I, I think I'll play with it and see. Yeah, see play if I'm, with it. Yeah. The, the trick is if you, and now we're going to get really geeky. The trick is if you think about what stimulates autophagy, autophagy is not just stimulated by a decrease in blood sugar. It's also stimulated by a decrease in nutrients. So one of the conversations I've been having with a lot of functional medicine doctors is, well, what if you come in with amino acids in your fasting window? Are you pulling yourself out of autophagy? And I think these are questions we just don't know. Um, and you just have to play with it and see how it works best for you. But but I do have that question in my mind. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I, I we know that, as you mentioned before, there's a lot of things that stimulate autophagy, including training, right? You have this yeah. like cellular turnover of muscle cells as they're getting stronger. You kind of replace the old weak ones with the new strong ones. So it's in, it would be interesting... Yeah, I have to, I have to, I'm going to play with it. I've yeah, never even. Play with it and see. Yeah, yeah. I feel, you know, do you know the cellular danger response where yep, the cells yep, yep. get so overloaded with physical, emotional, chemical stressors that they get stuck in this feedback loop that has the mitochondria not making ATP. It actually makes a signaling molecule that tells all the other cells, hey, shut down energy production, shut down hormone production because we're in a crisis. Yeah. Well, when you break that response down, what you see is that what will happen is mineral and amino acid and some some overall vitamins will be depleted, but the biggie is amino acids. So we have so many people, but specifically women that are in the cellular danger response. So when I come in and I backfill in with amino acids, I'm watching them come out of the response. So now they're handling stress better. Their moods are better. They're having more energy because those mitochondria are not making the signaling molecule. They're actually making ATP for what, and that's what we need. Right. So it's my new game changer. I love aminas. I learned something new today. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And then you're going to have to come back and tell me what you think. Yeah, we'll have to do another one. And I'll be like, I've been doing these aminos and let me tell you what I noticed. Yeah. Yeah. It's Um, amazing. Okay. Other questions. We we, we went off the the question, although we kind of included them. We've included a lot of them. Uh, There was a lot of questions around um, fasting. There was, um, there was one that I wanted to, uh, there was one around like, is constant low blood glucose optimal? 
Uh, so I want to just address that. And then I want to get into some of the fasting because there was, you know, I know that you just being, you know, the uh, author, future author of fast, like, a well, you are the author. It's just not out yet. Fast, like a girl. Uh, <laughs> you must get, I mean, I also, I get a lot of fasting questions um, yeah. and I wanted to maybe spend some time on, on all the fasting stuff that came in. So there was this one question that came in. It was like, is constant low blood glucose levels optimal? And this kind of goes back to what you were saying before about like, we love to live in the extremes, right? Yeah. It's like, we love to be like, well, my blood glucose, your, you know, yours is 70. Well, mine's zero. You know, it's like, it's like well, mine's, I'm going to one up you. My blood glucose is better than yours. Yeah. I can one up you by getting it even lower. And I, I think that um, the better way to think about optimizing glucose regulation is do you, what is the response of the body to an external or internal stimulus, right? So what is the response of the body to glucose as an exogenous substrate? So you have a carbohydrate meal, you have a protein meal, or you just have a meal, okay? What does your body do? So if right. you have a 70, you know, in her question, she's like, is like 70 to 89 milligrams per deciliter good or should it be even lower? And it's like, okay. So there's a lot of reasons why, even just looking at that number is incomplete. So you could go to a, like you could, you could have a CGM or you could go to a lab and you could get your blood drawn. Let's say it's fasted and you might have rebound hypoglycemia, which you're going to have super low glucose, right? Oh, you're going to be in that range or lower. And they're going to say, Hey, good job. You got like that really low blood glucose. But of course we know that there's a, there's a process that's behind that. That's sort of artificially um, creating this low blood glucose on the opposite opposite side of that, you could have, you know, we talked about this on the last show, the Dawn effect, right? Mm -hmm. You could have this art, like this, um, glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis that sort of spills blood, uh, blood glucose rather, or glucose into the blood is what I'm trying to say. And that's going to artificially raise your blood glucose. So does that mean that that individual now has deranged blood glucose regulation? Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Right. So we want to look at things in context. And then just one other thing I wanted to um, talk about, and I'm talking specifically to this woman and every single woman who always wants the A plus. OK, you want to <laughs> you want to look at your response. So if you have food and let's say within two hours, you know, maybe you started off at 70 milligrams per deciliter, as she gave in her example. And then I don't know, you go up to like 130 and then within two hours, you're kind of back down to like 100 or 90 or 80 or whatever. I think that that's a good blood glucose response because we're, we're looking at it in context. Yeah. If, however, you start off at 70, you have a meal and then your blood glucose goes to like 140, 150, 160, and then it stays there, that's the bigger problem. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So I just want her and everybody who's listening, it's like, we don't, we're not always striving for one number. And I just interviewed, um, Dr. Brett Shore, uh, Brett Share, sorry, of uh, the from the diet doctor, and he was saying, "I have a patient. I can't get his insulin under 15, but mm. he's so healthy. He's like the healthiest he's ever been, and that's where we're going to stay with him, right? But if we said arbitrarily, because I was like, oh well, you know, I, you know, in my, you know, and I do this too. So like to this woman who asked this question, like I'm with you because even in that interview, when you hear it, and I'm calling myself out here publicly. I was like, well, ideal insulin should be between five and seven. And he was like, okay, also let me school you for a minute. And I have a patient who is an outlier to that example, but they're also 
experiencing the absolute best health that they ever have. And their yep. insulin is hovering around 15. Now we've gotten it down from, Easy. you know, whatever number it was, 40 or 30 or whatever it was before. So there's been a marked improvement in their insulin output, but it's still not kind of fitting in that little box that I have created where I'm like mm-hmm. optimal five to right. seven, you know? So we want to be thinking about like relaxing our thinking a little bit. And I have mm. to do this and I have to work on this as well as a practitioner because there's like optimal ranges that I have like, you know, become my mantra that I'm always trying to push my patients towards. Right. But sometimes that's not possible. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 there's so much in that. It was that I think we can educate on. And here's the, what I look at it, blood sugar from a very simplistic, metabolically flexible place, which is we got, we go back to, we're either a sugar burner in a sugar burner state or a fat burner state. So when your blood sugar is lower, so when you're at like 80, and you're now maybe 10 hours into a fast, your ability to switch over into the fat burner uh, place is gonna be much more effortless because your blood sugar doesn't have as far to come down to signal to the body it needs to switch over into fat burning to make ketones. Now, I have watched a lot of women who will tell me my blood sugar is 70. I've been fasting 20 hours. I can't get a single ketone to come out of my, out of my body. And in, in that scenario, we got to start looking at toxins because toxins are causing the really effect. If we can go sugar burner, fat burner, and how metabolically flexible we are. So if I'm the woman who answered the, asked the question, if I'm always just trying to keep my blood sugar between 70 and 90, that's only one part of the story. The next part of the story is, are you making ketones? How can you make ketones? So make sure you can do that as well. The last thing that I want to say on this that's really important, well, two other things I would say, is what you talked about, which is the post-meal blood sugar. I think we don't give that measurement enough credit. So if you want to know if you're insulin sensitive, here's a really good question. Does your blood sugar come back to a pre-meal level, what it was before you put that food in your mouth? Does it come back within an hour to two hours after that meal? I think clinically, we they say two hours. I the, personally like to see somewhere between an hour to two hours. And if that you're coming back into a pre-glucose meal a number that was similar, then your body's pretty insulin sensitive, which is what we're looking for. And then the last thing, I, I recently had a really cool conversation with Dr. Boz. Do you, if you haven't brought her on your, your podcasting to bring her on. Oh, you got to make an introduction. I don't know. I don't know who that is. Yeah. She's another YouTuber that has been talking. She's an internist that has been talking specifically about hemoglobin A1C. And then she has something called the Boz ratio where, where you can measure autophagy. But here's what she told me recently is that if your hemoglobin A1C is, is above five, then your red, red blood cells are going to be gucked up with glucose and you're yeah. not going to drive oxygen into your tissues. So I say that to say blood sugar is one number. And I really want to compliment the woman who asked this, that she knows it. She knows 70 to 90. Now, the next question is, can you get into ketosis? What does your blood sugar do after you eat? And what are what's your hemoglobin A1C at? I think those are the, that's the next elevation of that conversation. Beautiful. All right. So Mindy, do you, this is a question. Do you fast every day? 
Uh, I would say 95% of the days. Um, I really try to make myself eat breakfast one day a week. I, I, I don't crave it. Um, but I'm really trying to mimic more in and out of uh, feast, famine, cycling. The, I think a better question would be, do I fast the same way every day? And the answer is no. I, yeah. you know, sometimes same. I may, maybe it's 10 hours, 12 hours and other days. It's like, I'm just going to go all day and I'll have one yeah. meal. <laughs> You know, recently I decided I got really into doing three-day water fast. So I've been trying that out and seeing where that sits with my hormones. So I'm always varying it. The hardest thing is to like an eight-hour window would be really hard for me to eat eat within an eight hours. You mean fat, so fast for 16 and eat for eight hours? That's the yeah. hardest one for you? No, no. Like, I'm sorry, fast window of eight hours. So oh, like, yeah. like yeah, yeah. I would eat for you, 16. Yes. Wow. That's hard. Yeah. I would like, say that. But that's what most people are doing, right? Yeah, yeah. So you would never see me like um, eat, finish dinner at eight and then wake up in the morning and eat again at eight. Like it just wouldn't happen. Right. So I guess I'm doing some form of intermittent fasting almost every day. Yeah, I, I am. You? Yeah, I am too. I, I, for me, uh, you know, I'm still cycling. So I typically find in my follicular phase, I can do a little longer you know, so I will, I will push it a little more. So I yeah. like, you know, a 10, like I'll f- fast for 14 hours, maybe 16. And then, you know, my window is, you know, whatever the other 10 or eight hours yeah. uh, eating window in my luteal phase. I don't feel like doing that. So I'm just generally hungrier. Uh, and I would also, so I'll do like maybe a 12, 12, you know, 10, 14 also works well there for me as well. And I think that it also depends for me on my, my output. So my physical activity, mm. if I have had a, like a monster leg day, I'm, I'm just generally hungrier. So I'm, no matter kind of where I am in my cycle, I will probably be a bit more lenient in the hours that I'm fasting. Um, so I also kind of take into account my own, we'll call it auto-regulation, like how, how, yeah. how hungry I am, you know, cause usually legs, like my legs are hungry cause I really, really yeah. push, I really, I really it. push legs. Um, so I like, I'm usually uh, a little bit more lax on legs, day, leg days for my, for my fasting window. And, and I would say I do that on in, in an opposite way when I know that like I have a bunch of podcast interviews or when I was writing the book, like when I know it's a performance day, as far as my mind goes, I will actually fast longer because yeah. I know with ketones, I can just get to that, to your point, to those, those neurons can fire up and give me some words a little bit better if I'm in a state of ketosis. So what about hair loss and fasting? This was a question that came in. Do you yeah. see this with uh, your women with fasting? If they're doing it a certain way, a certain type of fast, a certain length, is that something common that you see? Yeah, a thousand percent. And it means two things. It means you're fasting too much. So, or you're not fasting with your cycle. Um, you're not, you're not stepping out of a fasted state that week before you're not doing enough variation. And then the third thing I would actually throw in there is minerals a lot. We're just so depleted in minerals. Yeah. yeah. I I feel like fasting is like a mirror. So if you look at something like my hair is falling out, the next question would be, you know, am I using the tool right? Which is why variation's really important. But then the next one would be, what am I deficient in? What am I depleted in? And we all are so depleted in minerals right now because of the way our soils are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Um, and then I think, it, what was the, what was my other question here? Um Time restricted eating. What do I do in perimenopause? It's so confusing. Okay. 
I just want to say perimenopause is the hardest one to track all of this to. And I, and and then try writing a book teaching women how to track it. <laughs> and yes. I'm like, so here's what I would say. You get to know your symptoms. I really feel like we should understand when the body needs more progesterone. So um, every woman in perimenopause should be tracking her cycle. Well, every woman should be tracking her cycle. But just because your cycle may come every two weeks or it may come every 60 to 90 days, you want to start by tracking it. And the first day that you see blood, you've got to use feminine care um, products. That's day one. So get really familiar with tracking. The second thing I would say is that you really want to get to know your symptoms. So spotting. Spotting is progesterone's way of saying, hey, up the carbs. I need more carbs. I need to come in a little bit stronger here. So spotting, anxiety, um, those body anxiety, that can be a sign that estrogen is, is, or I'm sorry, progesterone is needing you to not fast. Whereas estrogen is going to kind of knock on your door when you're a perimenopausal woman, when your brain is really foggy, um, when you, mental clarity's down, um, maybe your energy's down a little bit. That's when I think, okay, throw some longer fast in there and let's see if we can help support estrogen a little bit and get you bring inflammation down. So, to answer the, the question, yes, we need to be fasting. When estrogen goes down in your perimenopausal years, you're going to hold on to weight a little bit more. So you're more insulin resistant. So it's a great tool. But this is why there's an art to it. You have to learn how to kind of use the tools depending on what your hormones are needing. I think that's such an important point. I think, and I honestly, it's a through line for our entire conversation is that what we're talking about are what has worked, let's say in the patterns in our clinical practice, what we've seen with our women. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be some nuance for how it's going to work for the individual listener, right? Yes. So the listener that's saying, gosh, I'm in perimenopause. It's so confusing. You might find it works really well. Like for example, um, in the Estima diet, we have two phases. There's one that's more ketogenic and one that's higher protein. What I'm noticing is that a lot of women in perimenopause like that second phase better. They like the higher protein. They like the higher carbs, slightly lower fat content. I mean, we're not going crazy with the carbs, but it's still, it's about 20% of the total calories that we're taking. And it's like, and some women in perimenopause really like to cycle. They're like, no, I really feel good when I do mm. keto one week, higher protein the next keto one week, higher protein the next. So you have to really play. And the mm. only way that you're going to figure out what works for you is by allowing yourself that childlike permission to play, yes. you know, to yes. experiment and to, and to say, this was wrong for me, or this really felt good. Or what if I just do a little bit of, like, what if I just tweak it a little bit like this? And I yeah. think that, you know, the information that you put out, the information that I put out, I think you'll be able to find some combination of something that works for you, but you have to be willing to experiment yeah. and not necessarily look for a cookie cutter recommendation on, in terms of like fasting for perimenopause, because, you know, we were talking about it before, like perimenopause has a lot of different kind of stages to it. Yeah. We see contraction of the cycle, then elongation of the cycle. And then we see estrogen up and then we see estrogen down. And then it's like, then you're like, I haven't had my period for six months. Is this it? You know, yeah. like, am I in menopause? You know, so there's all these kind of different, um, 
uh, we'll say waves to ride uh, in perimenopause. So it's yeah. it's hard to say, you know, what do you do in perimenopause? It's like, we got to figure out what works for you, for your age, yeah. for your metabolic flexibility, your fitness, your, you know, your stressors, all of the things. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to highlight and, and that. I, I love the word I like to use is be curious, like just be curious about what your body's doing and why it's doing and get to know your hormones. I feel like once we go into those perimenopausal years, the bitching goes up and we start complaining yeah. Yeah. And, and then you get a couple of perimenopausal women together and now you got a lot of bitching. And what I would encourage us to do is to be curious and to understand what it feels like when progesterone is trying to come in to give you, actually help you bleed. And when estrogen's trying to come in to actually push an, uh, an egg out, like what does that feel like? And it's, you know, in Fast Like a Girl, I go through this because we definitely wanted that book to, to map from the 17-year-old up to the 78-year-old. You know, we really wanted to go across all, um, all uh, hormonal profiles. So understanding that will hopefully be helpful. But I'm also, I don't know about you, I'm a huge fan of hormonal testing. I think every woman should, I'm, I like the Dutch test. Um, I think every woman should get a Dutch test and every year. And then you'll know your hormones like you've never known them before. Well, I think that this is a perfect carrot to dangle because I know that you're coming back on the show for your next book, Fast Like a Girl, where just as you said, we are going to be talking about fasting from, you know, seven to, well, maybe not seven, 17 to 70, as you said. Uh, How about 17? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take we it to 17. say 13, but I'm going to say 17. How about 17 that? to 77 or whatever. Yeah. And I, I think that um, we can really go into a lot of the weeds of the mm -hmm. book and some of these principles on our, on our next, uh, with our next time together. Yeah, I love yeah. it. I love it. I, 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 it's, this is always like, oh, do, is this work? Because this is really fun what we're doing right now. I know, I know. So. We've been talking for like 90 plus minutes yeah, at this point. I love it. Yeah. I love it. So y'all, if you love this, please, you know, leave reviews for us. Let us know because this started because like you said, of an Instagram follower, I feel like we should know who she was. I bet if we want to go back, back and, and look, find her and we're going to shout yeah. her out next time because yeah, this has been so fun. Yeah. yeah. I'll go back in my, I, it's in my, I, I'll have it. I'll find it in my Instagram yeah. somewhere. Awesome. I Awesome. But thank you. And again, like I learned stuff from you and um, the, you know, I'll end on this thought. I really feel like as women, it's time for us to collaborate and it's time for us to stop being in competition with each other, just and women in general. And what I love about coming together in a situation like this is that not there's no one person that's going to know everything. Yep. And when we bring together the questions of our communities, we bring our minds together. Everybody wins in that. And so this was a joy. So thank you, Stephanie. I appreciate it. So well said. Thank you. And I, I agree with you. I think that we want to be thinking about collaboration over competition. I think that's yeah. just that's just the way. And that's how we, you know, we've been taught that we have to compete with other women and we don't. There's we no don't. reason for that. There's more than enough to go around for everyone. So yeah. on Amen. that note, we will have you back on the Better Podcast for your day, your next book, Fast Like a Girl. <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed this. So as Mindy said, please leave, like tag us in Instagram, leave a review on the re on the Resetter uh, podcast, on the Better podcast, um, on iTunes or wherever you listen to uh, on YouTube as well. We would love to hear from you there too. 
Yeah, agreed. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 